which I'll probably cut from the podcast because it's really trivial. Uh, I've always seen when people do the, the, the swabbing in petri dishes, there's a certain pattern done. Why? What is the deal with that? Can you, can you speak to that? It's like you do it a certain way and you cross it. and It's a very specific pattern I always see when they do those, those petri dish swabs. Uh, it depends on the experiment you're doing. If I reach back into the depths of my hippocampus for uh, for my microbiology training, often you just want to spread the cells out very, very evenly um, on, onto the and look for individual colonies. So if you want the bacteria, a small amount of bacteria on your loop, um, and each one to grow into an individual colony, you don't want them all bunched up in one area. Mm. So that's why you streak from side to side and then go. Uh, perpendicular. In, in other situations, you might say divide the plate into quarters mm-hmm. and, and streak four different types of bacteria, one on each quarter. So uh, usually you find that the, the, the first streak has lots of bacteria and then uh, a lot of those colonies grow together and stick together, whereas later on in the, the streaking that you do, you get nice individual colonies that you can pick. So it's, it's about separating the individual bacteria so that you know all of their, bac- all of their offspring have come from one bacterium as opposed to a, a blob. Hmm. It's just interesting because like, even as, as uh, unexperienced with biology as I clearly am, that image is, is almost iconic when, we, when, they, when they show someone doing science in a lab. They'll show the little petri dish and it's got this very specific pattern. And yet <laughs> the clever observation that led to that dumb question is <laughs> that you actually noticed that there was a specific pattern to the way they do that. So that's something else that I would... I would uh, say to a, a, an aspiring young scientist is really think about what you observe in the world because observations are the critical thing for science. So, uh, as a personal question, uh, what, are you, what are you reading right now? Uh, believe it or not, I am reading Twelfth Night by William Shakespeare. And I don't say that just to be, just to be sound erudite on air. Um, I, I really love the Bard on the Beach Shakespeare Festival in Vancouver. And I'm enough of a Shakespeare nerd that every year I try to read through each play before I go to see it. Okay. So I kind of get more out of it. And, and so that, that's what I'm reading right now. The fiction that I'm reading is, is Twelfth Night. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm working through Hamlet right now. Yes, I understand you have an upcoming show. We do have an upcoming show, which will probably be long gone by the time this podcast drops. So I may or may not plug it in the show notes. Okay, but uh, uh, yeah, I've I've always had a hard time reading Shakespeare. Like it always seems very, it's meant to be spoken, right? So yes. When you read, do you ever like read it out loud to yourself or to your to your wife or kids as you're reading it, or can you you know just read it silently and, and pitch the voices in your head, kind of thing? Uh, I often read in bed, so I don't read out loud to my wife because that would wake her up. So <laughs> she's got her own book. <laughs> since I wish my wife to continue to be my wife, I do my best not to wake her up by reading Shakespeare aloud. Yeah, it's just because I've heard a lot of people talk about that. Like they try to read the play, and it's like it kind of falls flat. Uh, but they you speak it out loud. Some of these words, it's all about the words, right? Yes. And uh, and have them actually come out suddenly becomes makes much more makes much more sense. I guess I, I read it. Realizing that I won't understand everything on the page, and then allow the actors who are actually performing it to to inform my understanding. So when I read through the play, I look at that as laying down the mortar, and then the actors actually put the real brick on top. They're doing the hard work. I'm just getting my mind ready to receive their performance. That's good. Doing your homework, as it were. Uh, well, yes. I was thinking it was interesting about 
modern productions of Shakespeare will you know will cut a lot of have to cut a lot of lines and maybe modernize it a little bit and set it in a different time maybe a modern time uh, and maybe because they don't trust the audience they don't expect everyone to be someone who reads the play before going to the to the show uh, and I was thinking well Shakespeare's audience didn't study Shakespeare in school that's true they probably didn't <laughs> they probably weren't even mostly literate right uh, and yet you know they go, showed up and got and got the gist of the play. Well, I can guarantee everyone in you know the audience of you know the Bard on the Beach studied Shakespeare in high school. <laughs> Probably yes, and yes. So, so maybe not that particular play, but they they have you know read something, they've heard something about it, and yet we at the same time a lot of directors maybe don't trust the audience to like, come along with them. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting. <laughs> Well, certainly, they, they didn't call it that back... Or, uh, they didn't call them Easter eggs back when I was reading Shakespeare in high school, but they, he did put in multi-layers to the text and, and jokes that some component of the audience might get and, and lots of, uh, I guess, time-specific puns. So he, he, he did make it an excellent use of Easter eggs <laughs> to make sure that his, his audience, high and, high and low uh, social status, would, would everyone would get something out of the play. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I find that... I'm sure that as people were, like you say, like the groundlings were getting a certain, they like the sword fights and they like the kissing and then the people in the back going, ha ha, he referenced Plato. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to get read out loud to my wife and she's always, hears me in the other room and she thinks I'm just talking to myself. <laughs> it's like, are you okay in there? And, uh, I'm just running lines. Leave me. It's okay. We're good. So, uh, earlier you mentioned about uh, some people have, there's obviously in the human, uh, in the human DNA, there's uh, uh, newer uh, evolutionary things like the ability to digest uh, dairy, for instance, as I understand it, is a fairly recent addition uh, to the human condition. Is that a true statement? I suppose it depends on how you characterize recent. Certainly, uh, cultures that traditionally have relied on um, cow's milk or, or milk from other mammals like goats uh, as, as a major source of, of calories and protein in the diet, those um, uh, populations traditionally retained the ability to digest lactose into adulthood. So essentially, uh, just about everyone is born with the ability to digest lactose because they can digest uh, their mother's milk from breastfeeding. Mm. This biological slash biochemical trait can disappear later on in life if if uh, milk is no longer consumed but uh, uh, populations like European populations or uh, the Maasai in um, in East Africa uh, that have traditionally relied on, on milk uh, have retained this trait and they have there are there's research out there that has looked at genetic variants that seem to be strongly associated with the retention of the ability to uh, digest l the lactose from milk uh, mm. long term. Uh, yeah, because I've just heard it explained that this is like in, in measured in like tens of thousands of years versus you know uh, earlier other traits that uh, human traits that are you know conceivably much longer. Uh, so that 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 what I mean by the earlier. <laughs> Yes, I, I, I'm afraid I'm not as my knowledge of population genetics is not detailed enough that I, I put a, a hard number on it. But we're, yes, we're talking in the in the small numbers of thousands of years. Mm. Yes. 
because um, there's uh, some trends lately in diet, uh, so like the paleo diet, for instance, that uh, basically take the, 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 the thought, as I understand it, that we were not meant to digest grains uh, and, uh, and dairy. They're primarily were to eat milk and, and leafy greens, sorry, uh, meat and leafy greens, um, based on some sort of uh, both genetic and sociological background. Is there any merit to this to this claim or is this something there's certainly a there's certainly merit to thinking in detail about what someone eats if I could make a generic motherhood statement <laughs> thinking in detail about what you eat is a good thing yes um, the with the number of diets that are marketed to the public there's often a, a real excess of hype over strong scientific evidence. So certainly there is emerging evidence that a diet high in carbohydrates, um, particularly refined carbohydrates, is not good for someone's long-term ability to regulate their metabolism. Mm. That, that uh, There does seem to be uh, evidence favoring this idea of, of that high glycemic index foods, and by glycemic index, I'm talking about how much insulin and how quickly the body is required to secrete insulin after ingesting a particular meal uh, or eating something. Um, that uh, uh, foods that f force the body to secrete lots of insulin in a very short period of time um, can lead to uh, an accumulation of fat and, and a, a, a long, over the long term a resistance of the body to the effects of, of insulin. Um, and that's, that's uh, a known risk factor. Insulin resistance is a known risk factor on the path to diabetes. And mm. there's a huge um, and recent increase not only in the population prevalence of uh, obesity, the, uh, being overweight, but also... Uh, Type 2 diabetes, which is a, a, a disease that's very highly correlated with being overweight. So to advertise a particular diet over another, uh, it, or to, to, to sort out the differences between diets, actually takes quite a lot of experimental validation because most humans are free living and, <laughs> and eat whatever they want. And it's very difficult to control someone's access to a diet. Certainly some recent papers in the New England Journal of Medicine have uh, presented strong evidence that a Mediterranean diet, which is relatively high in uh, leafy vegetables uh, with some meat but not excessive amounts of meat um, and relatively low in baked goods and refined carbohydrates is protective against cardiovascular disease. Um, that's a separate marker, um, though related to the diets that uh, uh, cause or are correlated with uh, diabetes or, or obesity but mm. I think we're starting to accumulate really solid evidence there was another paper recently in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at the consumption of sugar sweetened beverages so uh, soft drinks largely but also you know double tall lattes with extra flavor squirts um, and thank uh, you for not using any brand names in that in that list thank you you're, you're welcome <laughs> it's not your not your first time <laughs> so it uh, there may there may be a time yet when someone can can go into a, a cafe and order a bacon double cheese latte um, but hopefully that time is not soon <laughs> in the future uh, none, nonetheless that um, it, having a lot of refined sugar particularly like when you drink it uh, that that kind of 
does an end run around the body's ability to feel full. And um, uh, it has been shown that basically the more uh, sugary drinks you drink, the heavier you'll get over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also showed... They and also that's not just calorie to per calorie. That's... That's uh, glycemic index versus high versus low, right? Well, yes, but this was this was uh, 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 this study had a retrospective component to it, meaning looking backwards. It wasn't it wasn't taking someone at a at a base and following them through the study. Just uh, we can't put everyone in the Skinner box, right? <laughs> uh, but certainly the uh, sugary drinks have a high glycemic index. You get a big whack of sugar right away, and your body has to secrete insulin right away. Um, to transfer that sugar into your cells, um, so they did. They did. There was a genetic uh, component to that study, and they found that people who had more um, uh, minor genes or, or common variants that might predispose them to obesity, if you had more of those genes and you drank more sugary drinks, you got even heavier. So there, there was a gene environment interaction um, with pretty solid evidence behind it for for that. Um, so I think we, we are really accumulating evidence that um, high sugar foods are really bad for you. And I know, and I know that doesn't sound like a particularly profound scientific revelation. <laughs> I don't think but. too many people, uh, even I, who in, do enjoy a sugary drink, am not fooled by its health, uh, any health claims it may make. <laughs> um, I, the recent turn against people, grains especially, I thought unusual because I was... My understanding of human culture is that when we could stop hunter-gatherer and we start planting roots and literally planting roots and becoming an agrarian-based community is when we suddenly mathematics and philosophy and science and engineering all take off because we can stop and take our time to do that sort of thing. Uh, but I can kind of imagine like the first guy to say, hey, buddy, you don't need to go hunting today. We got we have grain. We can stop and have a community here. Somebody went, I don't know, man, carbs. <laughs> I don't know. Gluten, is it low gluten thing? It's like, it's wheat. I planted wheat. Like, it's just not a, I invented agriculture. It's not, not enough for you. I don't know. Wheat belly, man. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure it's not, there was some, some primitive uh, early human cult conversation. <laughs> yes, perhaps it's recorded on a, a Neolithic cave wall somewhere. Some guy pointing to the grain going, eh, yes. I don't know, some, some raw vegan. <laughs> so I'm going to ask this question, and I, and I uh, fully expect you to refuse to answer it, but uh, I understand. Is there a genetic marker or predisposition for homosexuality? That is, the answer is... That is very much not known. I would say that that is one of the um, most interesting, not yet solved biological questions. So we, we really don't have good evidence either way. Because mm. I knew there's some basic twin studies, and that sort of thing, which is a, as close as we can get to when all these people are genetically identical or similar and comparing their, their, their sexual preference and that sort of thing. But that's interesting. That's still kind of a big, big question in the, in the realm of science. Yes, I mean it's 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 not clear um, at what level that that would operate. Presumably at a, at a neurological level, but whether mm -hmm. the, the relative contribution of genetic background to the environment, however you want to define it, someone's uh, experiences through life in determining uh, that kind of preference is is very hard to separate out into testable categories. So. Mm -hmm. 
it's uh, that's probably the reason why it hasn't been solved yet. Certainly, there was a lot of enthusiasm around solving the uh, genetics of partner preference um, uh, in the, the early days of sequencing and, and doing uh, linkage analyses and so forth. Uh, but uh, none of those data, none of those studies that thought they had found a gene for homosexuality were actually well replicated. So hmm. we really still don't know about that. Hmm. Does it also tie back into the, uh, the disease model uh, for genetic study that if homosexuality is not a disease, then, then no one's really going to be studying it? It, it well, I would say that if it depends on how you yes how you define a trait right is 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 something a disease or isn't it and often it can be easy to find something as a disease if there's a, an organism invading the body and it makes someone feel terrible and and um, kills them then that's pretty unambiguously a disease <laughs> yes if it's if it's a style of thinking. Um, that gets into a, if you'll pardon the pun, more of a gray area of the brain. And, uh, and it can just be hard to set up studies that answer the question unambiguously. Mm -hmm. So certainly there have been in the past genes that were thought to be the homosexuality gene, but further study has shown that it, there was, that that was not, uh, reproducible. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so there is not one or even a few genes no, uh, that, that would cause that. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm glad you could actually answer that because it was like one of those outstanding issues that, of the, of the basic psychology that I, that I took in high in university was like, well, there's probably a genetic component and there's a sociological component and a learning component, that sort of thing. And I was, I was always kind of curious about the genetic because, you know, it's, it's, I, I would say the most likely thing is that all of those components do operate. But the challenge then becomes sorting out the quantitative contribution of each of them. And interestingly, the quantitative contribution <coughs> pardon me, of, yeah. of each of those components, the sociological component, the genetic component, um, the environmental component, those may be different for different people. Hmm. So, so science doesn't have all the answers is what you're <laughs> <laughs> if science had all the answers, I mean, we, we'd, we'd, we'd be, be out of a job. We'd, 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 we'd be done and we can go read Shakespeare for the rest of the day. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so we can uh, change gears a bit and uh, we maybe do a break. We'll see how that goes. If you were willing to talk about uh, fandom and sci-fi for a little bit, if that's... Sure, happy that's to talk cool. about fandom. Cool. So, uh, so Bill, you're here in Calgary. Uh, in, in part, uh, you attended the Calgary uh, Comic and Entertainment Expo. Yes, it was lots of fun. So, what was your uh, your your seed, if you will, for fandom? The young Bill at home. What got you? What was your first fandom that you could say? Uh, difficult to to go back that far. Sort of first fandom. I mean, I I always remember being interested in science fiction. Um, of course, Star Wars came around at, at just the right time. Um, at, you know, when I was, I guess I was eight. Um, and uh, shortly, at the time, my family was um, was living in Edmonton. I believe I saw Star Wars in Edmonton. Uh, shortly after, we moved to Toronto, where I saw my first ever, ever episode of Doctor Who, um, featuring John Pertwee as the, as the Doctor. And I, I remember there was a cliffhanger episode from the... Um, uh, what was it now? The the Sea Devils, um, 
And I, 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 I was absolutely astonished that they would end the show without telling me what it was, like what, what happened as a little kid. I hadn't fathomed the concept of the, of the serial and having the cliffhanger. And it was, uh, so I felt truly betrayed at the time, and yet I had to know the answer. So eventually, by going through the TV guide, I figured out that the show was called Doctor Who, but by then they were in a different episode, but a different series. But I started watching it and eventually was, was able to find out how he survived that particular uh, that particular trial. Yeah. That's cool because I think what I remember watching Doctor Who, obviously not first run, it was uh, rerun, and catching in the middle of some serial and being thrown, having a similar experience, being thrown into the middle of it, and it kind of as a kid, it's like I don't know what's going on here. Right. Clearly, there's a whole thing, and and that kind of put me off of it for a bit mm. until like they, they actually reran in the in the eighties sure. the series again, and I could watch kind of the first. 12 episodes or so in order um, so I wonder how many how many cliffhangers uh, both in, uh, engaged young viewers and put off young viewers yes. it's an interesting uh, writer <laughs> from a writer's point of view it's like is this cliffhanger helping me yes <laughs> so Doctor, yeah, Doctor Who uh, Star Wars was your kind I mean, of guess, earliest maybe not first but earliest if, if dinosaurs can be considered a fandom then I would say that would have to be my first love because I was always I was always into dinosaurs and and um, uh, you know dinosaurs are the gateway to actually a fair bit of science fiction. So reading some you know Edgar Rice Burroughs for example, Tarzan at the Earth's Core and Pellucidar and that sort of thing, um, I, I found that fascinating. And and you know I don't remember exactly when. I mean I had always heard that the dinosaurs were extinct. Yes, and I, I don't remember exactly when my mind actually made the flip to think, you know, they real like there's no hidden worlds where they're still surviving, no lost plateaus, you know, and 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 you know, it kind of reminds me. I mean, presumably when I you know found out about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, you, know, you may want to take those out of the pod- podcast for your, your younger viewers. We have a very mature viewing audience. So yeah, so uh, so I, I probably I'll revise my answer. I'll probably say dinosaurs were my first fandom. All right, that's fair. That's fair. Like I don't think they get enough cred in the modern uh, because they're not science fiction. They are that's science right. fact. That's right. Uh, although I, I I was shocked to learn a couple years ago that there's no such thing as a brontosaurus. That's true, and and, and, and true. hasn't been since the 30s. But I think I was still taught, even when I went to school, that a brontosaurus was a thing, and. Uh, and that kind of threw me kind of a it's like it's a little bit like learning about the Easter Bunny as an adult well I think about the Brontosaurus like um, it's almost like a mythical beast now you know like you talk about the chimera that has the what is it the head of a goat of a lion and, and, and tails and, and, and tails of a dragon yeah. right so I mean essentially the Brontosaurus is a chimera it's the, the, the body of an Apatosaurus with the head of a Camarasaurus so there you go your 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 oldest <laughs> mythical beast it, 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 it was in a museum how could it be not true <laughs> well but that, that just gets back to the scientific method is, is you know when, when new truths emerge we change our minds at some point you gotta you gotta throw those away and, and carry on and I know at an individual level that can be very difficult but I think as a as a, as a culture we have to be able to do that more readily than perhaps we already do <laughs> I think in part the whole Brontosaurus controversy also speaks to at some at some level, the the necessity and sometimes making hard choices in in presenting science to the public. Uh, uh, what I recall reading was that 
originally the, the skeleton of Brontosaurus was displayed without the head because the head hadn't been found. Yes. And at one point, one of the curators decided, like, no one wants to see a skeleton with no head, so we're going <laughs> to... Gosh darn it, we're going to put a head on there! And that was, that was the head they had, so it was actually reasonably close um, so to, to what they thought the head looked like, so that was considered acceptable. But then so many observations were made in descriptions of the Brontosaurus, assuming that it was the actual head, when in fact it was it was not. So he sort of that curator made that made that tough choice of do we present it accurately or do we present it palatably in order to engage the interest of the public. So that's a, that's a, that is a tough call. Yeah, I mean it was a, a tough position for him to be in. I mean, it's not like the like the Brontos. Well, the, I, I cannot pronounce the 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 beast that it actually is. Uh, a Patasaurus and the and other similar ones. They're not that dissimilar from my mental image of a Brontosaurus. So it's not completely revolutionary, but still, you know, or learning that the Triceratops is, made, is probably a, a juvenile form of yet another. Uh... Well, there, there are some real challenges in paleontology and figuring out which measurements are the most important. So yes, is um, is, is Triceratops a separate species, or is it a juvenile form of Taurosaurus? I think yeah. it's, these controversies always always erupt in, in the literature. And how many fe- now they all have feathers? I think, <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> which is pretty cool if you picture them as being more feathered or something or something that's neither scale nor feather. I probably more accurate. That's right, and they're even starting to analyze some of the actual fossils. Um, from uh, I think it's the Liaoning area of China where the feathers are reasonably well preserved to, to get some insight into the actual pigments in, in the feathers although those have not been preserved I think they can get some idea of the dark and light pigment patterns um, that the mm. feathers might have had or proto feathers so. neat so this raises a question uh, the doctor comes to you the doctor of doctor who comes to you and gives you one trip in time and space where do you go? You know, it probably would have to be the late Cretaceous. Probably would have to just see those dinosaurs. Hopefully, not too up close. At least not yeah. the predatory ones. So yes, that would that would be my pick. Late Cretaceous. Uh, late Cretaceous. That's a, that's, a t- that's a question that I have wrestled with on many levels. Like, if you could go anywhere in time and space, you know, would you go human history, distant? You know, try to find alien history because it's all kind of on the table. Uh, or, you know, Lake Cretaceous is a good one. Mm-hmm. Of, course, of course, you know that you went there, you'd see some dinosaurs, and then you'd be chased by, you know, uh, sea devils for 45 minutes. <laughs> hey, if it was only for 45 minutes, that would be all right. Just, you know, 45 minutes and then uh, an explosion resolution, and you're done. So yes. that's, that's <laughs> knowing wherever you go, you don't necessarily get to do what you thought you were going to do, <laughs> which is the second layer to the Doctor Who question. Yes, exactly. Um, that's good. So what's your – would you have a, a current – big current fandom that you're currently excited about? Um. I mean, I would, I would say that um, uh, I Doctor Who would probably have to be my current favorite fandom. Again, partly because, bizarrely, partly because the series went off the air and then was revived. It's kind of like when they say you can't go home again, and yet... It feels like you can when something from your childhood disappears and you're sort of sad for it and and mourn its loss and then then they bring it back. So um, so that would that would have to be my my current favorite. Yes, and you get reaching back into into the days of childhood. That's good. And you, and you like the, the the current doctor, the Matt Smith. Yes, absolutely. So and so, who would be your doctor? Like, would it be 
Uh, well, it would probably be Tom Baker in the, in the sense that that was uh, at that period of time when I basically watched all of the episodes and, and uh, I didn't watch enough of, of John Pertwee had sort of was replaced by Tom Baker quite early into my following. Mm-hmm. So, so Tom Baker is the, the, the one, those episodes were what got me when hooked it, on this on the series. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, if it were, if it were my doctor, then that's, it would have to be Tom Baker. That's good. Yeah. Uh, but I want to thank you for coming down to the uh, luscious uh, Dumb Question Studios and uh, having a chat with me. Uh, thanks very much, Kit. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. <laughs>